Welcome to China Manufacturing Decoded from Southeast, the podcast where we take you through some of the major topics facing importers and manufacturers in China today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of China Manufacturing Decoded. And today we are joined again by Clive and Max. Uh, so uh, Clive has been on the podcast a few times, uh, just quickly, uh, highly experienced quality and operations uh, executive and consultant, uh, these days working mostly on medical devices, uh, new product introduction. And Max from uh, the MTG slash CMC group, who is a highly experienced consultant who worked for a long time in the auto industry and consulted for, for several uh, large uh, companies in that industry and comes with a lot of, um, lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, a lot of good advice. And uh, these days he is in the UAE consulting for uh, companies and organizations there. All right, so the topic of today is the cost of quality and specifically the cost of poor quality. And we'll unpack this, what it means exactly. And then we'll talk about, you know, uh, where it comes from, how to prevent it, what is the most important uh, section of the cost of poor quality to focus on and so on. Uh, so first question is, usually when we talk about the cost of quality or let's say costs related in some way to quality, there's prevention and appraisal. And there's internal failures and external failures. Can one of you guide me a little bit through what, what this generally includes, what, what it means? Yeah, Max, do you want to take that? Yeah, okay. Uh, thank you. And uh, good day, everybody. Um, yeah, so your question there, Rano, is obviously we're basing this conversation around the cost of quality. Um, You know, if we if you start from the, the the worst case, which is the external failure, um, I mean, obviously the cost of quality from a failure of a product product once it's out in the market could be catastrophic. Um, you know, certainly, um, you know, having worked in the automotive industry and the rail industry, um, you know, we've, we're all aware of uh, situations where vehicles are recalled because of some failure in a product that might be due to the production side of it, or it could be a sub-assembly that's supplied in from a third party, a first tier supplier or whatever. So, so obviously from an external point of view, that's a, a it's not only a major cost to the company um, on warranties, on setting up call centers, on feedback systems, etc. When you talk about internal quality issues, if the, if the quality Um, of a of a of a product is caught within the production process, then obviously the cost then is rework, which we all know is one of the um, seven wastes. So re reworking a product is labor intensive. It can also cause um, problems with your production line, so your ongoing operations, and then you've got your sub assemblies that you're buying off a. A supplier that if 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 that's a product failure, then you've got a recall, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think there's various there's various ways that you can actually put a cost on it, but ultimately 
there's all all of those have got some form of figure on them. I think the important thing, though, to to consider is for me personally, is the internal costs, because putting in the systems to be able to recognize quality defects is obviously an important factor because you don't want the product failing out in the marketplace. But then that goes back to how do you deal with those and how do you stop those quality defects from coming through the system? Yeah, I agree with that totally. I, I would suggest that, uh, that the idea of, of, of putting a cost on quality itself is, is, is probably the wrong way of looking at it because mm -hmm. it should be an investment. You invest in your quality because you are investing in, in, in your company, you're investing in your own product. So just trying to put it down as a, as a bottom line cost is probably the wrong way of thinking about this. Um, so, so what you're saying is, because um, so Max covered, just to get back on what I was saying before, Max covered the external failures in the marketplace, hitting the customers, you know, failing in the field and so on and the internal failures that are cut before the product leaves, before the product hits the customer. Um, people also talk about prevention and also all the, all the cost of appraisal. And I, I think that's, um, you know, what everybody puts in the category of prevention is really to, to build quality systems, to train people, to set up the right process controls and so on and so forth, right? Um, and, and all of this has a cost, but as you say, it's, it's prevention. So you could talk about that as an investment. I, I get that. What about the appraisal? Because you still need people you know, to, to audit what's going on in the lines, to inspect the product and, 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 and things like that. Well, that, that comes under the same sort of, uh, uh, of heading as far as I would be concerned, because let's assume that you are working on a normal production line with normal production flows. If you have a system in there, what's the first thing that you've got to look at is how stable is that production line? Um, classic measurement is CP, CPK. That will tell you what your predictive failures are, right? Which means that you can either increase or decrease. And it is all about having the well yes the knowledge of how to actually work with predictive failures and how to take that knowledge and look at how you can improve the quality throughput as against the actual end product so my view that end of line inspection to say that your quality is acceptable is is actually a cost having inspection at preset stages which your defemers will give you is actually saving, it's actually cost saving is that because you're not making a, a bad product and it going through the entire production line until it gets to the end and all of a sudden it fails. That is waste uh, in, the, in the purest, simplest form that you can see. So having systems and investing in your systems to get to a point where you are working in, in as close to a zero defect environment as you can is actually investment and it's cost saving at the same time. If I, I don't think that you can look at it as, as, as pure cost. I think you have to look at it as an investment cost. Okay. In, so in all through. Investment means some people are going to ask what is the return on investment, right? So then you, you still need to 
account for it, for what you invest. And then you want to look at the return, right? It, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I, 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 I understand what you're touching on there, Rano. So how, how, how do we put a cost on, on, on quality defects to yes. be able to do some maths to say, well, okay, if we invest this amount of money, what would our return on investment be based on yeah. reduction in quality failures? So I think in, in its broadest and simplest term, any quality defect is a cost. That, 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 and that, that's a fact. Whether that part or part or subassembly becomes scrapped or reworked or, or whatever that is, you know, th there is a cost there. How do you how do you actually put a value onto that? And you know, we've all worked in production and operation environments. It's very difficult to sometimes put costs onto subassemblies going down a production line as an internal cost because the cost is actually what the customer pays at the end. Yes, we can do we can do some uh, you know some basic uh, maths to try and understand that. But for me, the investment in the for me, the practical problem solving side to solve the problem. So one is highlighting the defect, highlighting the quality defect. But then, as we spoke about in our last podcast, it's what you do about it. That's where the, that's where the investment comes in, because as Clive's correctly said, it's it, you know, the maths is simple. We want zero defects all the way through the process. But that doesn't come through inspection because inspection is a cost. Now, yes, of mm. course, there are certain manufacturing processes that need external auditing, et cetera, et cetera, to confirm certain elements of a process. Absolutely. So that, that, that's a given that we've got to do that. But any failure is a cost. Therefore, investing in the people and investing in the culture of, um, of the defect rectification, but also right down to the root cause to solve those problems. Yeah. I mean, we all, we, we all know PDCA. Well, I, I mean, I put an I in front of that. And that first I there is actually identification. You, you cannot plan to do anything unless you don't know what you're planning for. So mm -hmm. I think that where the real cost savings are, I mean, I, I believe in quality, not as a cost, as actually as a cost saver. And I believe it's also cost reduction at the same time. Is, is the identification of where the likelihood of defect is and then plan to actually address that and then check it make sure that it is actually doing what it's doing so i think that it, when you're looking at the cost of quality in generally i think it's the wrong term i think that that, that this is a, a fundamental issue that 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 the quality industry has got the cost of quality is actually or should be an investment in cost reduction you, you cannot keep wasting raw materials, even if you do have to rework them or, or you can rework them. The fact is that you've got the cost of rework, the cost of new materials, and you've also got confidence. Any time that you have a failure, it is a confidence kick, basically, because how assured are you? And remember what we're talking about here, in, in all, all three of us, is, is quality assurance, not quality control. And the quality yeah. assurance has to be based on 
how sure are you of your processes? There's only one way of doing that, and that's to test them. There's your investment. And then putting things in place to actually, when you do find that there is uh, an issue or an error, is to put in, for example, pokey and things of that nature where you say, okay, let's remove that likelihood. So again, you can actually, if, if, if you have a streamlined process, which is proven to be working in a zero defect environment, you are actually saving money. So what? how much are you saving? What's the percentage? Well, it depends on what your scrap rate is. It depends on how much time you lose by putting things right. Yeah. yeah? yeah. And, and that is, I mean, any operations manu, uh, manager can tell you how much per, per hour he should be producing. But if he's producing every 10th unit has to be reworked, well, he's lost the 10th unit plus the time of rework plus unsure, uh, uh, unsurety, that's not the right word, but he's unsure of how stable his production line is, which normally means he slows his production line down. Yeah. And that, again, adds cost. Yeah, for sure. So what you're saying is quality is... Now, quality assurance is cost reduction. Uh, it actually comes with, with with more benefits. I mean, just just having very good quality assurance is, is great for customers. In in some cases, you know, if if a company has a reputation for for consistent quality, and not just consistent quality, but everything that comes around it in the widest sense, right? The, the products are reliable. They don't fail early in the field and so on and so forth. It's not just quality of manufacturing, it's also quality of design. Uh, then yeah. when you achieve that that kind of reputation, it, isn't it much more than cost cutting? So where I'm going is, should, should we talk about costs first or should we just say quality? I mean, that, that should be a major goal uh, at the top level for, for companies. Yeah, well, if you if you look at the reputation, for example, that BMW had for quality, outstanding. I remember many years ago, I um, I was rebuilding a, a BMW 320, and I stripped the engine and took the crank uh, took the um, the crankshaft in, and, and basically they said it's got a fault. So I said oh, I'll buy another one. Two weeks later, I got one in the post with a note from BMW. BMW crankshafts don't break. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that's reliability. Or, I mean, or you can go the other way. And I think that, they, I mean, not to, you know, uh, rubbish any supplier, but let's say a, a well-known Swedish company who had a reputation. <laughs> yeah. Who had a reputation and the joke was that why do you put... What, why do they have an electric wind, an electric um, rear windscreen? And the answer for that was to keep your hands warm when it's pushing, when you're pushing it. Yeah. Sure. I mean, there's yeah, a lot of stories like this. Yes. There's <laughs> lots of stories like that, but 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 when you think about it, these are true. You can you can have the reputation of your product as being good, or you can have a reputation of your product being mediocre. The question is, what market are you playing in? 
So if your products are, shall we say, have to be good, then they have to be good. If your market or your business model is, it doesn't really matter, providing it's cheap. Yeah, and then that, the cost of that, then the cost of quality is not the same. And that is so, a serious issue that plagues a lot of uh, a lot of importers of consumer goods actually in in, in, in now, China, yeah. not just China, uh, yeah. Vietnam, India, and so on, because the, the factory just produces without any Thought. any significant quality assurance, um, and then who who would bear the cost of poor quality? Customers and the customers. Yeah, customers. And, and, yeah. You've you've got you've gone to the you've gone to the point there, Reno, of that's the ex that's the external cost. Um, you know, I remember when I was working in the the rail industry doing some consultancy work, and the um, the new product introduction manager. I spoke to him and I said, we can get twelve months warranty on whatever the component it was, and he turned around to me very correctly, and it made me think. He said, I don't want warranty. I want it to work. Mm. And, oh, yeah. you know, and, and that's sort of stuck with me because, uh, you know, I bought a component and I went away, uh, a, a charger or whatever it was, and it failed on us. Well, I was in a different country. It was no good. And it's like, you know, okay, well, we'll give you the money back. But actually, I don't want the money back. I want the product to work. That's why I bought it, yeah. because I wanted that product. So, you know, but the warranty side is a major cost to the companies because somebody's paying for the paperwork, yeah. the administration, the returns, the post, everything that's in, involved in that is huge. But that's where it pushes back to what Clive was talking about, um, you know, back into the production line is stopping those quality defects. But by putting, by paying workers and paying inspectors, unless it's a, a, a legal requirement to do certain audits, but to, to pay for inspectors and checks and put additional checks in, you can keep on doing that and doing it. And as Clive said, slow the production lines down. You can do all that. But if the fundamental thing is if, if you are not instilling a culture into the people of continuous improvements, practical problem solving, whatever titles we want to call it, but actually get into the root cause analysis to solve the problems. And then not only solving the problem, but then standardizing that and looking at where else that um, that same type of defect could occur that hasn't occurred yet, but um, it, it, it could occur. So that's the sideways thinking of once you've found that problem, standardizing it across uh, that particular component or whatever that is. So that, 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 to, that to me is the fundamental, is the culture, the practical problem solving, the root cause analysis, PDCA, we can give it all the fancy titles, but ultimately it's getting to the root cause, finding what the problem, why it happens. Is it lack of maintenance? Is it because the person wasn't trained correctly? You know, where they work into the standardized work is the standardized work in place. All those elements all fit into the, the whole production culture of the people to ensure that you are not passing on poor quality. So yeah, if, exactly. if I hear you well, what, what you're saying is, if you really do good, good root cause analysis and good fixing at the root, it in the long run, it actually doesn't necessarily increase costs. It could actually cut costs because you improve your process. However, yeah. a lot, a lot yeah. of times, um, and, and you know that people say, oh, you know, do an AD on this, you know, do something. I want to make sure 
it never happens again. And then instead of really working on the process, they, they say, well, you know, we're going to add this administrative measure. You know, we're going to have yeah. an inspector check this and yeah. we're going to have someone check that. And, 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 and then yeah, but, do that for a while and your cost balloon yeah, but, and balloon. Yeah. Yeah. But what, 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 what you're saying there though, Renault, is that adding inspectors is not solving the problem. It's exactly. a control. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it's just controlling the problem. It's not actually removing the problem. Right. So, for example, if you don't know why, and if you look at the vast majority of problems, the vast majority of failures, they, they, they will go either a process failure or a control failure. The process has been wrong. It's not been controlled enough or the actual controls that you put in place were not detailed enough to, to find yeah. that problem. So, you know, you're not looking at multiples of, of reasons. Your root cause will take you to actually what, what caused it. And, for example, really good supplier quality management can save you enormous amount of problems. If you, not only in your own company, but if you instill within your supplier base as well, that your acceptable quality limits are x they are not y they are x and if it falls out of that line we won't accept it so i i believe in in in, in that the quality must go through your entire supply chain you must have that the, the the ethos of being what is acceptable to us is not the same as what is acceptable to tom dick or harry and controlling that <clears throat> Yeah. And, that, and that comes back, Clive, to something that we discussed in, in, the, in the last podcast is, is how do we put that positive tension onto the suppliers? Um, and I think this is a, you know, it, it, is, it is a big one because we get a sub-assembly sub coming through the door and we may have an inspection process within the warehouse or whatever that is before the components are stacked on the shelves or go to the production line. But if we find a failure with a supplier part, Ordinarily, it's put to one side and somebody picks up another part that's an OK part. And yep. it's what that it's what that PDCA, what that feedback is back to the supplier. And what su what support can you give the supplier to uh, rectify those those problems? Yeah. How can you work with those people that go boils down to like we said before, though, Max, was that relationship is how do you view yes. the relationship with that supplier? If we're talking about cost. There is a classic example of, of cost, which is not quantifiable. Yeah. Okay. That part failed. We'll just go and get another one. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The question that I always have with this is you found that one. What about the other ones that you haven't found? Exactly. Where are and they and what are the implications there? That's now, something that's, that I found that Toyota, sorry. So, sorry. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that I found that um, Toyota was very good at. Um, obviously, supplier development, et cetera, to work alongside the company just in time, all the other elements there. But if we had uh, parts that were coming in from a supplier, say, into the weld shop, let's just say that it was a small company making some form of brackets, metal stamping brackets, whatever. If we found a defect um, on those parts, then for sure we needed to keep the production line running. So we would you know, put it 100% inspection in or a rework or whatever with the components. But immediately we would contact the supplier 
And they understood that it was their responsibility then to send someone to site to rectify, to sift, to sort, to 100% inspection or whatever that was. So immediately the supplier was totally aware that there was a problem there and they were bearing the cost as well because they'd lost a man from their production line, from yep. their factory in supplying it out to, um, to ourselves. So, so that was the cost of their quality. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. But what, um, what, I was, what I was getting to there was a lot of companies, or should I say just about every company that I've worked in uh, since then, would just simply because their focus is keeping the production line running, they would bear the cost of that because they would just you know bend the brackets or re-weld it or, or whatever the rework was on that particular component. They would do that to keep production running. And what's that? That, that, that cost is... Yes, you could quantify it and say it's taking me a man day every day to do it until, you know, until, 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 until whenever. But if that relationship with the supplier and the quality is not there and that feedback loop, then you'll, you'll, you'll bear that cost for, for forever. Every day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the point, again, Max, you're absolutely right, though. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that when you do for example your designs and you've got to i mean we haven't talked yet about design for quality and design yeah. for manufacturing yeah. because yeah you know yeah. There, are, there are there are costs involved within you know i say that any fool can make 10 the trick is making a million and and it's making a million and not a million and 10. you know there's no point in actually making product which is no good there is literally the, the net result of that is bankruptcy for me designing quality means that you can save cost because you are not going to have this enormous amount of rework and you're not gonna have product in the field which fails unless you want it to fail at certain points at certain times okay so now we're looking at a different aspect to all of this, which is now the cost of transportation and shipping. You cannot afford to be shipping bad quality now because the cost of a container will just eat your profit. So, again, I come back to the fact is that trying to establish a, a, a justification on quality of pricing is wrong. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. You can't say, well, it costs us 10 and we make 12. So it's the wrong way. Actually trying to justify increasing your quality as against the cost of putting it in there, I think is wrong. I think it's the, the wrong, um, wrong mythology around that. We should be looking at increasing our quality as a cost saver, not as a cost or a cost implication, because that's the wrong way around. Bad quality costs a lot more than good quality. Yeah. Not only is it about the product, it's also about your reputation, how your customers see you. You don't have to send customers bad quality more than a few times for them to start looking elsewhere. That is your true cost. It's an investment. And that's, to me, you invest in your processes, you invest in your people, you train your people. We all know that every every quality assurance system out there in the world tells you it's the buy-in from everybody within the company that actually helps to drive quality improvement. The truth is you have to have buy-in from your customers that understand 
that you are investing in your production, you're investing in your quality to help them. And if a customer comes and said, well, okay, we want really great quality, but a really low price. Well, you know, we all want to go out there and buy Ferraris at the same price as a Mini. Doesn't work. If you can work with, a, with your clients as well, which again is quite half of this is, is we want acceptable quality at an acceptable price. Then you can work with that. But if the, the, you know, for me, if the first question is always how much, my next question is thank you and goodbye. Because you, you set it off on the wrong, wrong perception of the service that you deliver. Yep. Quality is investment. Sorry for going on there, guys. That's something I feel a little bit strongly about. We can see that. <laughs> it, it does make sense. And that, that brings us to um, another question I had, and we, we touched on this, but let's, let's touch on it from the perspective of the average Chinese manufacturer that exports, let's say, consumer goods, okay? Because these people, very often, they have a very limited um, understanding, right, of quality. You go in their, in their factories and they, they, you talk to people and you see that they don't even, um, they, they were never trained in quality, there's not even a, a, a proper quality manager and, and, and so on. And then you try to talk to top management and they don't understand anything about this. They're like, what, you know, I, I just see money coming in, money coming out, you know, what is he talking about? So what, what is the role of the customer uh, with a relatively unsophisticated manufacturer um, maybe Max, do you do you want to, to touch on that? I mean, well, first, what are the basics, right? Um, you need to explain what you need to receive, what you can accept, and things like that, right? Okay. So, from my experience, um, having uh, worked in China, um, I think one of the considerations that any company has that is buying parts or components or subassemblies or whatever that is from China is that the Chinese people have a different view on quality. Their outlook on quality, their acceptability of quality is perhaps different from ours. Now, certainly when I worked in the automotive industry in China, um, the particular company that I worked for uh, although it was a global company, they only supplied internally to the, the, the they supplied their subassembly to cars that were being manufactured within China for the Chinese market. And the reason for that was because they would accept a lesser quality. So these particular components that I was making were, um, you know, surface products within the interior of a car. So it was visible, visual to the occupants of the car, but their, their, their level of acceptance, it was difficult for me to understand that having worked in some of the major automotive companies across Europe, it was difficult for me to understand how they would accept a lesser quality level, but that's a cultural, that's a, that's a cultural thing. And that's we're not necessarily going to change that. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that because, you know, the cost against, rework in those components the dies the, the the stamp or whatever that is um versus what their acceptable level is 
So what I'm saying, what I'm, what the point that I'm getting to there is there's a there's a difference between their internal market and what they are um, supplying outside of um, of their country. So I think it's very important for any um, company that is going to buy components or subassemblies or whatever from uh, Chinese manufacturers is the need to be able to go in there and have a look to ensure that they're putting the right controls and measures on what's acceptable because they can do a quality check and what's perhaps acceptable to you and I, um, sorry, is not acceptable by you and I would be acceptable by them. So it's what that standard is as well. So it's, you know, the, 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 stand, the, the standard of what we accept as, um, as say in Europe, for example, um, is, is quite different from, um, is from what they would accept. Because the, 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 this particular organization I was working for were supplying parts into a well-known German brand, but it was only for the internal market. They were being made in China and they were only for the internal market. But those components were not acceptable by the same company that manufactured the same product in Germany. So there's a consideration there for, for anybody that's um, either already got suppliers from China or are thinking of um, setting up some supply chains out of China. I mean, it's 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 not it's not difficult to do, but you do need to understand that there is a difference there. Therefore, you need to put that in place, so put something in place to be able to support that. I agree with Max there. I would add though, Max, that the actual client bears a great deal of that responsibility as well. Mm -hmm. If they and We've seen this over the past 18 months, uh, especially with, with the PPE market, which was a, a, an atrocious mess. That the buyer doesn't actually know what he wants. So he, he can't tell the, the supplier here what he wants because they find it impossible to articulate the exact standards which they would, would use. And that's where there is a great deal of confusion. I work with some fantastic companies in China. I'm working with one now. And they understand what they need to do. And they're willing to go to that length with me to get to that point. Now, standardization, yes, is a must. But at the same time, simply saying, I want it black, doesn't is not good enough. No. What Pantone colours do you want? What's the finish? What's all of these questions? Now, what I've found in the past is that many buyers are, are, either don't know or are afraid to say because they believe that if they tell them what they really want, the price will go up and they're not doing their job. That is where the, that's where the, where the buyers actually bear that responsibility. You cannot... I cannot put in a quality system... To manufacture a product to a standard which I don't know what that standard is. Of course, it's just impossible. No. Yeah. Now, should it be that the question is not that the Chinese don't want to make it to that standard? Because I believe that there are companies in China that do. I work with Agreed. them. Agreed. It's the people at the other end of the spectrum which are saying, "I want it quick, cheap." And yeah. I don't care because if someone tells me I just want it cheap. I, I read that to, I don't care, as long as it's cheap. Uh, especially the, in the Chinese 
the average Chinese person's mindset in the manufacturing sector. I want it cheap means I can accept poor quality. The, it's always related in the, you know, I've heard that a hundred times. Yeah, but they don't want to pay a high price. So, but you accepted the standard. Yeah, but they wanted a, a low price. So it means there's a lot of, a lot of giggle room around the standard. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but, what you're looking at here, there is only one way of curing this problem right now, and that's that's for the notification bodies and the standards authorities to actually enforce what they require. There's no, you know, I mean, we've we've seen this. Okay, if you read MDD, for example, there was there was so much wiggle room there that you could drive a double decker bus through there. So just for the, the listeners, yeah, Clive is talking about medical devices and the, yes. the directive for general uh, medical devices that has been yeah. uh, uh, fortunately uh, replaced Removed. Uh, not, not long ago. <laughs> yeah. And now with, with MDR, medical device regulations, it is much more precise. The requirement that you have to fulfill as a manufacturer is as it should be now. The question is... Will the buyer accept that this is what the norm is? And there is, obviously, increased liability, which is good. There's increased liability throughout the supply chain now, whereas there wasn't before. People were hiding behind platforms. Talking with, with people at, at uh, the BSI, which I was um, last week, there is a growing awareness not just within the medical device industries, but across multiple multiple markets and multiple sectors, that this realization of we have to now start to crack down. And I think that's one good point. But if you look at the customs and people like this, even just a, a cursory inspection of documentations, there's not enough customs agents. What do you do? That or that must, in my view, pass on to the actual client. He's buying it. He should know what he wants, and he should be the one which sets the standards. The manufacturers will make it to that standard if they're told. And they're yeah, and I think I think I think on that point, the uh, Clive, obviously, when there's devices such as your. Uh, currently working with on medical devices where there are very strict guidelines and standards and regulations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's, there's that element of it, but then there's also the, uh, the element of supply of, um, let's just say components, items, whatever, that aren't regulated by governing bodies such as that. Um, and I think what you touched on Clive is about the, the standard. So just linking in what I was uh, what I was getting to with the sort of the cultural difference and the standards is certainly if you're a company who is looking to have a product supplied from China and you're from the, the, the West, from Europe or, or, or whatever, what we believe is a given, as in, well, of course, it's going to be undamaged or unmarked or of course it is that's 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 what we would expect if that's not written into the standard exactly then the failing is on 
the buyer, as you said, yeah. Clive, because yeah. if that, because having my experience within China is they, they, you know, they will make a component and they'll, they will supply it. But if it's not set in the standard, then it's, it's, it's like, well, that's not what you, that's not what you set as the standard. So yeah. <clears throat> again, it goes back to very clear of exactly what the standards, what the expectations of the, uh, of the buyer, the customer uh, actually is and working with the supplier to ensure that they understand what your expectations are and what you're paying for. Because yes, okay, it can come down to cost, but it shouldn't do really, because if you're making a part correctly, you're making a part correctly to the standard. That's exactly. it. Exactly. That's it. There is no, there is no if, buts or maybes. Does it meet that standard? Does it meet what you've wrote down as your acceptable quality limits? Or your levels? What is it? If, if, you're, if you cannot say that, you can't blame the supplier. No. Because the, the supplier will look at the price and say, well, I can make it at that standard for that price. If you haven't said what that standard is, well, it's, it's how long is a piece of string? Yeah. Uh, there, there is nothing to judge it by. Um, <clears throat> however, if you have that supplier that's looking at your relationship as a partnership long term, and we all know in China, they don't think long term as what we would do of development and things like this because of the geopolitical situation. But that's not the issue. The issue is regular supplier meetings, telling them exactly what you want, even if it comes to a point of asinineness of, of making sure that the dots are correctly placed and everything, it pays in the end. That will increase your quality. That will increase getting what you want. Now, if you don't tell them and you haven't wrote it down and you haven't put the right numbers on drawings, for example, or the right material specs, and you haven't actually said we want, for example, here's one that we say. I do not believe in a certificate of conformity from anybody. I simply do not believe it. I will take that certificate of conformity and I will test that product. Does the product meet the certificate of conformity? And that is, an in, that is a simple yes or no. If it's no, it doesn't, then you have a problem. Then you're going to have to work with that. If it does, you have got a level of assurance within yourself that these guys are doing it right. If you back that up with, with, with periodic inspections or, predict, or predictive failures, I mean, if you start running SPCs and you start looking at what your trend R squared numbers are, and those R squared numbers are within your tolerance bands or your upper and lower control limits, you have got, you have got an assurity. You can drop your, your, your inspection rates. You can look at how fast you can run the line up there. If you have none of that, which must always start from the identification of what the client needs and how do you get to that point, that is investment. You're investing in the client. The client's investing in the product that he's buying from you. Unless he's just buying cheap, where he has got no personal investment in that product. Okay? The question has to be, has to be brought back to, to the client. Is the client investing in his own product? If the answer to that is he just wants it cheap, then the answer is no, he is not. He just wants it cheap so he can ship it out. It breaks down... Next week, it doesn't matter. 
because we could buy it again and get paid twice. There's your real cost. There's, there's a lot of cases like this, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do, do you have something to add on this, Max, before we, we wrap up? Or? No, 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 no. Very good. I'm good. Great. Well, that's, um, I think uh, Clive brought us all back to, uh, <laughs> to the basics here of making sure uh, you work with, with the right people who, who actually care uh, about quality, otherwise, all of this discussion is uh, is, is is not very relevant. <laughs> um, but I, I think we touched on, uh, on 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 great points here uh, on the role of the customer in actually educating the the the, the supply base uh, on uh, the way to actually drive quality improvement in the long run uh, without uh, necessarily increasing. Uh, a lot of the costs actually it should uh, drive the costs down if we work on the on, on the processes and fix the problems at the root um, and 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 maybe um, uh, an in, yeah an interesting discussion on whether we should talk about quality and costs together and talk uh, use costs to justify quality improvements I think um, uh, both of you made some some great points here so. Um, Thanks a lot for, for, for joining me today. That, that was quite, uh, quite interesting, quite enlightening. And, uh, and, and thanks to the listeners. And uh, we'll, uh, you, you will hear uh, again from the podcast next week as usual. Thank you. Thanks, Clive. Thanks, Max. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to like and share. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other places that you get your podcasts from. See you next time.